What do I call you? Does it matter? Fine. When I yell fool, you drive out of here as fast as you can. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where we're all about building tension here in Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 49, which begins with the Rock Riders watching all of these vehicles entering their canyon, and it ends with Furiosa touching up her war paint. Wow, building tension is right. That is the theme of this week. Mm -hmm. This entire week is nothing but building tension. So over the course of the next... Five days as we're releasing the episodes, but three days of actual recorded content. You know, it gets really confusing when I try and think about like how our release schedule works, so I'm not going to try and think about it too hard. Suffice it to say that every day this week is just a subtle ramping up of what's going to come next week. But before we get into the content of the minute, something that I like to do whenever it's just the two of us, I have once again been listening to the You Are Awaited podcast, and I actually got to listen to three episodes leading up to this point, because of just how the four minutes per episode structure works with them. And so, I have some observations. Episode 13, specifically, made it very clear to me as a listener just how, I guess, fresh they come. They watch the minutes, and then they just go. Like, they remember things out of order, and the sequence of events gets really weird. Certain details get changed. Like, they thought that Furiosa was attacking Max with a wrench when they were bolt cutters. And I'm like, okay, I can understand that if you watch the section of minutes and then just come and gush about it. Like, I can understand not getting exact details perfectly right. Right. It's the same way that we do hiatus material. We watch the movie. You take notes because you can't help yourself. I don't take any notes. Yeah, I really can't help myself. So those specifics, they don't stick like the first time around. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is one thing that's fun about doing it minute by minute is we are intimately familiar with those details. Oh, yeah. We get to be super minute with all the details. And I think that's one of the main reasons that we didn't stop at Beyond Thunderdome. And I know nearly 50 minutes into the movie is an odd spot to start talking about our intentions in doing four seasons instead of just limiting ourselves at three and letting Yuri and Travis be the official Fury Road breakdown podcast is that we've got a different dynamic we've got a different way of going about it and i feel fine with you are awaited and the mad max minute presents fury road existing in the same sphere oh absolutely totally different coverage another thing that i really like is when they refer to things from the earlier movies that we forgot to talk about for instance when furiosa says to the wives if you want to get through this you got to do what i say And that is a parallel line to Max back in Road Warrior saying, if you want to get out of here, you talk to me. I love this comparison. Never occurred to me. This is a completely new one to me, but it's perfect. Another parallel, but it's more accurate to call it a reversal. They notice that when Max is collecting all of the weapons in the war rig, that is a reversal of the weapons check window in Beyond Thunderdome. He's finally picking up his weapons. Exactly. (laughs) 
I only wish he had done it before he left Bartertown, but I feel like I've beaten that horse and let it sink into the sand at this point. I think so. They also started this running joke that Nux is wearing Jinko jeans, which given how edgy the Warboys like to be, you know, being part of a death cult and all of that stuff, I find it pretty funny and I'm looking forward to hearing it more as I listen to the You Are Awaited podcast. Just a little thing like that. So they meant it as a joke, not actually these are Jinko jeans. Right. Okay. The observation was more specifically that these are probably just army surplus cargo pants. Yeah, that's what they look like to me. I like the idea of the Jinko jeans. I was a teenager during that time. <laughs> during those dark ages. Yes, but never <laughs> did I participate in that particular trend or did any of my friends... I couldn't really tell you off the top of my head much about that trend. Did Jinko ever make women's jeans or did they specifically try and market to the male demographic that wore just huge oversized pants at that time? Because I can't for the life of me remember a women's line from that company. I did a super quick Google search because like I said, I wasn't part of that trend so I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. A quick search did produce... Jinko jeans for women. And actually, some of these visuals I remember, there is on the used clothing site Poshmark, there's a pair of Jinko jeans that is for sale for $90. And they are the silhouette of the classic Jinko jeans that we see. They are a little bit more tailored, though. Oh, okay. And these particular ones have red and white, like swoopy stripes down the legs. And that aesthetic, like, sparks a memory. I've seen those before. Okay, then. I definitely missed that, hence all of the questions about <laughs> women's apparel. Some of these pictures are very, like, exaggerated bell bottoms. Mm -hmm. Now, moving off of the pants. Please. They noted that when Max gets his muzzle off, they used a term called a Max smile. And they said that he gets that muzzle off and he's looking down at the muzzle and we get a Max smile, which is not a typical curved up corners of the mouth showing teeth type expression it's a lot more subtle than that it's more of a look of self-satisfaction and we get that from max and it's i think one of the few times in this entire series that we get max being happy and i think it stems directly from him taking a course of action and having that course of action directly result in him being liberated in some way well, that's certainly something that hasn't really happened so far in this movie. Exactly. And then to wrap up my recap, as it were, Yuri and Travis were equally glad to see the whole believer versus non-believer showdown between the wives and Nux. They thought that was really great. And then they pretty much agreed with us that the bullet farmer from the bullet farm <laughs> is just redundant. Yeah. So getting into the minute proper... When we wrapped last week, we were looking at this wide shot overlooking a bunch of rocks and seeing the war rig and the individual war parties coming towards the mouth of the canyon. And as we start off today, we're pulling back and we see that there are individuals on motorcycles pretty much camped out at the top of this ridge. And these are the rock riders. They are another tribe that we're getting to know here. And this is just a small taste. We'll see them more on... Friday, and then of course they're going to feature into the next big action scene we have. But I'll suffice to say that this is their territory. They use their motorcycles to get around it like no one else can. And so they just control this area very tightly. 
As to their backstory, Brendan McCarthy, one of the designers for the movie, he was hanging out in a bar watching a TV, motocross was on, and he was so impressed by what he saw, called up George Miller, said, hey, this is really cool. And when Miller heard their description, he was like, yeah, that is really cool. And they hired a bunch of professional motocross riders from around the world to perform the stunts in the movie. I like that story. I like the idea that George Miller was willing to entertain this idea that was outside of his comfort zone, outside of things that he knows. Oh, yeah. And look at that and go, hey, that's pretty cool looking. Let's bring that in. Yeah, George has been using motorcycles since the first movie. He's no stranger to the vehicle at all. It's just he's never quite used it in this way. And I just love that he's so willing, like you said, to try something a little different. And I suppose that can also be a bit of a callback to the motorcycles that we've seen in the past. Every time they've appeared, they have ramped up and up and up. And kind of the natural conclusion to that is motocross. I'm not really sure if there's any ramping up after motocross. But everything has gotten more and more extreme. And the same thing can be said for a lot of elements in this movie. We saw them in the past. They were brought back here in a more extreme way. Mm -hmm. So let's cut inside the cab now because Furiosa is driving through this canyon. Max is in the hole. And Furiosa turns around and asks him for his name. And Max is obstinate like he is, usually. And Furiosa says, okay, fine, forget about the name. What do I call you? And of course, Max fires back with, does it matter? And the first thing I think of is Max back in Road Warrior talking to Papa Gallo when Papa Gallo's like, who are you? And I brought up the point. Does it matter who Max is? And that's the exact point that Max is bringing up here. It could certainly be argued that to be a successful character in Hollywood, you don't need a name. One of the most successful characters of all time is the man with no name portrayed by Clint Eastwood in Sergio Leone's Dollars trilogy of spaghetti and Western films. It was a fistful of dollars for a few dollars more, and the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's right. He was more of a visual character. He had a certain collection of iconic wardrobe parts that Clint Eastwood would put on, and then everyone would just recognize him as that character. Yeah, and another notable feature of The Man With No Name is that he rarely talks. And that really caught my eye. That's something that we use to describe Max all the time. We also use to describe Max iconic clothing like the jacket and the brace on his knee. He really is a parallel to the man with no name. In 1996, Clint Eastwood was honored with the Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Film Institute. And in Jim Carrey's introductory speech, he said, the man with no name had no name so we could fill in our own. And that is also a parallel to the Mad Max movies, is that we have this character who is quiet and solitary and doesn't give out his name easily. And he's also grieving and vengeful and angry, but he can't help but do good. We are meant to, and it's really easy to put ourselves in that spot to imagine how we would handle things. In fact, we've run into that problem before in previous movies, where we are projecting our emotions and how we would react onto Max when he isn't reacting that way. Mm -hmm. I have to wonder as well, is there a certain intimacy that comes with telling another person your name? You're allowing yourself to be identified because 
in any magical fantasy situation, they'll say that there's a lot of power in a name. And if you remain anonymous to someone, then you can disappear from their life just as easily as you showed up. And if they know your name, then there's a memory attached to a name, to your presence, and then suddenly that might create some sort of weird connection to that place. And so I think one of the reasons that Max doesn't like to give out his name is specifically because he doesn't want those attachments to begin forming. If they don't know his name, they can't latch on to him emotionally. I can't remember exactly where it is, what fantasy novel or story I read it in, but if you know someone's name, you have power over them. You can command them if you know their true name. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily the name they use on an everyday basis, but if you know their true name, you have power over them. And there's also religious connotations to a name, a new name being given to someone who has been initiated. Mm -hmm. And... There is significance in giving a child a name. Many religions have a ceremony, a right to give a child a name. Like Catholic kids who get to choose their communion name. Yeah. Like Jerry Porter when we had him on the show. Yes. And then, of course, there's the less serious instances of that, like in the Hello from the Magic Tavern podcast, where the blue wizard Usador talks about how he has many names and some names that have such power that if they were uttered aloud that... The very sky would turn to pudding and the earth would (laughs) boil under the slightest touch. You know, ridiculous things like that. Yeah. But you get the idea. So Furiosa is not having this. She just says, fine, when I yell fool, you drive out of here as fast as you can. She wasn't trying to initiate any sort of working relationship with Max. She was just trying to organize a signal for her to shout. And so... Here we are with Fool. I love that it's just a little bit of poking the bear. (laughs) That, fine, if you won't cooperate with me on this really small thing that I'm asking for that's entirely reasonable, I need to call you something. That's why we have names. Yeah. Then I will choose one for you, and it will be Fool. By the way, calling people a fool is like the first step to being a Disney villain. Oh, You don't say. Oh, I do say. There's a meme that I posted up on the listener page this morning about Disney villains calling people fools, and it's quite entertaining. Did you actually post it this morning, or are you going to get reminded by listening to this to post it? No, I set a reminder on my phone. Oh, okay. Because at the moment, it's too far out to schedule it. (laughs) So I did the math, and I set a reminder on my phone when to go schedule it. To drop this morning. Okay. And I'm just going to trust that I did it. <laughs> in that case, I'm leaving all of this in. Just okay, to fine. put your feet Ooh, to the fire on that something one. Something I wanted to check real quick. I want to check if Charlize Theron had ever worked for Disney. Oh, okay. So Charlize Theron has played a Disney villain, but not in the Disney rendition of it. She has played the evil queen in a Snow White story. Yeah, it was the one with Kristen Stewart and Chris Hemsworth. Yes. I think it's Snow White and the Huntsman. I think so, yes. And the evil queen from Snow White is one of the villains referenced in the meme. Oh, there you go. That's what we call a direct line. Yes. (laughs) The blundering fool. Once Furiosa tells Max she's going to yell fool and he needs to drive out of here, We get a reaction shot from Max. He kind of raises his eyebrows in response to those instructions. And 
I wonder if in this instance Max is realizing that he lost out on the chance to give himself a really cool nickname. Like, she asked, oh, what do I call you? And he could have been like, call me Blaze Thunderpunch, or Rex Dangerfoot, or Burt Macklin, FBI. <laughs> Anything like that. Yeah. And now he's thinking, dang, I could have given her just the coolest nickname, and I choked. I couldn't think of one. You'd think a man who spends so much time alone would come up with cool nicknames for himself. You know what? Maybe the nickname that he wanted to be called was Does It Matter? And the subtitles spell it out as Does It Matter? But maybe in Max's mind, Does It Matter is a name that he wants to be called. Like D-U-Z-Z-I-T. Like, please call me Does It. Mr. Matter is my father. Right. <laughs> It could just be a miscommunication, which is all too common here in the wasteland. We're going to keep calling him Max, though, because I find the nickname does it a little silly. But hey. Oh, you don't say. What isn't silly about, you know, half the things in this movie? (laughs) Something that's just kind of weird is what Furiosa launches into next, because she transitions into showing Max how to get past the kill switch that she has set up. This trope in movies of handing over important information that must be perfect, like an address or a phone number or a sequence like this one, handing it over once, no repetition, no writing it down, no chance for the receiver to be like, okay, this and this and this and this and this, got it, makes me nervous. (laughs) I would fail immediately. I would never be able to remember all this information that she is about to hand over. So there's something interesting about this because Furiosa, she starts counting. She says, this is the sequence one. And then we get a close up on the switches and she's pointing to each one in turn. And she goes one at the first one, two at the second one. And then she says one again. And we don't get to see which switch she's dealing with because we cut back to Max. And then we cut back to Furiosa And it's her sitting in the driver's seat and she goes red, black, go, pointing to different things on the dash. And the last thing she has Max press is this big red go button on the dashboard. So I popped back to minute 42 when we saw Furiosa doing the kill switch sequence before. And I noticed something weird about this. So like I mentioned, first switch once, second switch once, third switch twice. Once on a switch that we don't see, red switch once, black switch once, and the big go button on the dash. That's what we're hearing here in minute 49. Back in minute 42, when she climbed into the war rig, Furiosa hit the second switch twice, the third switch once, and then from there we see her flip the red switch, we don't see black, and then the rig starts up. Because we cut outside to look at Nux. I think that Furiosa pointing at the switches in this minute that her pointing is slightly off. That either we're looking at it from a weird angle, that the switch she's pointing at needs to be one over somehow. Like she said one, one too many times, or the first switch that you have to do is somewhere else in the cab. I just feel like what we saw earlier and what we see now and the way they cut the things, if you were transported into this movie and told to start the war rig, I don't think you'd be able to do it. I agree. The continuity is close enough that you know they tried, but 
something just isn't quite right. And I agree, it's probably a matter of what they got in the shot, angles, perspectives. I think they tried. And really, Max is going to be able to start this truck no matter what. We're not going to have a repeat of when he tried to steal the truck because that just wouldn't be narratively good. That would just be awful, frankly. So we know that he's going to get the rig started. We know he's going to be able to drive out of there if the need be. It's just we can be nitpicky if we want. I choose not to be too nitpicky about this particular thing. Okay. It's inevitable that it's not going to match. I appreciate that we know that it doesn't, but I'm not going to harp on it. Yeah. Is there a different sort of kill switch sequence that you would have liked to see? I'm thinking of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, where he gets to that one door and a little keyboard pops out of the wall and he drums a little ditty on it and it opens the door. I would be so tickled if ah. they got into the war rig and there was a little Casio keyboard thing. If you had to tickle the iris. And she had to do that thing where you roll the knuckles and da 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 Yeah. That sort of thing <laughs> to get the rig started. Hmm. Well, within the confines of their current technology, it'd have to be something analog. I think it would have been cool if it was something to do with her arm. Something only her mechanical arm could do. Hmm. Like her arm has some sort of key that she stores in it. Yeah. So when she wants to start the rig, she pulls out the key, puts it in a slot, and then when the rig is stopped, she takes it out of the slot, puts it back in her arm. Maybe. But something that can't be stolen and something that can't be replicated. Yeah. So maybe a key that's attached to her arm. I suppose a little Swiss army knife-ish. Or like just by a little chain. <laughs> well, then, if it's just by a little chain, that's the same thing than wearing the key around her neck. Yeah. I don't think that's good enough. I think it has to be something that's not a key. It's a key, but it doesn't look like a key. Like, maybe something special about the configuration of the fingers. Mm -hmm. Makes me think of in National Treasure, where they've got that pipe that is carved like a tall ship. Turns out that's the key. Mm. And it's so intricate that it can't be duplicated. You have to have that actual key. But you would never guess that it's the key. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. Like she has another finger on the arm and she just kind of presses that finger into the dash and then kind of pops out. Because you can't have Furiosa physically attached to the rig at all times. No. It has to like just be used to open a compartment where the switch is inside. Something yeah. like that. That she temporarily uses it. And something very well disguised. Because if ne'er-do-wells wanted to steal the rig and they realized that the key was on her arm, her mechanical arm, they could steal it off of her. But they'd have to steal it first. Yeah. It's a tall order. <laughs> Speaking of tall orders, we get a particularly high and wide shot as the rig is driving through this canyon. And it really helps to establish that this canyon is really just as Max feared. It's tall it's narrow, it's winding, it is a prime position for ambushing or getting trapped somewhere. It's just very dicey looking. And I like how this movie is showing us how the geography is laid out. Because one of the nicest things you can do for a viewing audience when you're putting together an action scene is make it clear exactly how the landscape is shaped. Which we will appreciate in the coming minutes when things really get going. Exactly. That we will have some sort of frame of reference for what's going on. And so here at the tail end of the minute, Furiosa 
grabs some grease from around the steering column and starts smearing it on her forehead. She is getting painted up to be an Imperator once again, which we'll definitely talk more about on Wednesday. Oh, for sure. So that wraps it up for minute 49. We're going to put a pin in this until Wednesday. When we come back, everyone is going to be on edge. Furios is going to bring the war rig to a stop in the middle of the canyon, and the tension is just going to keep ratcheting up. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 49 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.